we're going to deal with the whole notion of global warming. We passed $368 billion worth of help, which, as the same bankers talk about, is going to bring a billion, a trillion, $700 million, billion dollars off the sidelines in investment. We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm elections. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program for our million, billion, trillion, gazillion, gazillion <laughs> episode of but fun here. Off the sidelines. Like, wow. I want to see a debate between Fetterman and Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Who's more mentally confident? Moderated by Kamala. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, no surprise the old guy's having some issues with our economy. He doesn't know the difference between a trillion and a million and a billion. Well, what the hell is he even talking I've, about? I have no idea. He's going to bring all this off the sidelines. Dollars off the sidelines? And it was like a climate change talking point. Yeah. The I, hell is he talking about? I think about? he got halfway through the sentence and realized he had no clue if he was lying or not. So he kept negotiating down with himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a trillion, billion, oh, maybe a million. But also... <laughs> Like the, <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure if I completely made that up, so I'm just gonna round round down. I'm gonna throw a bunch of numbers yeah. in here, and you figure it out. One of them will be right, <laughs> but and Glenn Kessler will defend it. Yeah, hundred percent. But it also, like, if you just take a step back, it's a hilarious commentary on his governance and the, the view of the modern left, right? Which is like, okay, so he sets a bunch of rules that basically try to promote one industry in electric cars, like basically try to ban fossil fuel development in this country, knowing that like the investor class will then shift investment towards this new set of laws that he's now passed. Right. Meanwhile, you're stuck with seven bucks playing a gallon for your gas. Yeah, right. it, it all comes together so beautifully in that statement. I don't know if you guys caught the New York Times earlier this week, but they described Biden's style I saw that. this way. Quote, Biden's folksiness can veer into folklore with dates that don't quite add up and details that are exaggerated or wrong. The factual edges shaved off <laughs> to make them more powerful for audiences. Oh, wow. right. Was that the same one that said, like, he's doing better now that he has a microphone in his hand? Like, they took him out from behind the podium? Was that Sto the same piece? Storyteller in chief. So, spins yarn that often unravels. See, I, 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 <laughs> that's the headline. I love how when it's a pretty good headline. I love how when it's Biden, they're like, "Oh, listen, folks, this is just like folklore to make the message more powerful." Just rounding off of the edges. The president of the United the States continues edge. to lie to you and is unreliable and is probably out of his mind. <laughs> just total fol folklore is a good yeah, way. Just, of just some folklore, folks. <laughs> just a fable just a little, or two. Just a little folklore. <laughs> a president fable. Aesop. <laughs> <laughs> he sops fables. I love it. I didn't see that as an intro, but here we are. Uh, we've got a great guest today, fellas. We've got Governor Pete Ricketts of the great state of Nebraska. Important for a lot of reasons. One, he's just an absolutely incredible governor. He's got a great story. His family owns the Cubs, right? So he talked a lot of baseball, but he's been in the news a lot lately. Mm. Been in the news a lot lately because Senator Ben Sass announced that he may very well be leaving the Senate to accept a university president job, which would create a vacancy. And there's I, I hope you ask him if he's going to appoint me. 
I would, you know, I didn't ask for the job of a Nebraska senator, but <laughs> if that's what the people want, I will serve. Have you ever been to Nebraska? No. <laughs> <laughs> like that might be a prerequisite. Uh, but so I ask him what he's going to do. And there's been a lot of people who've been clamoring to try to get him uh, to either appoint himself or somehow they love him because he's just a smart conservative governor. Um so you'll have to see. You'll have to see what he says about all of that. But you know what? There are also a lot of people clamoring to get him in an interview. And it just shows the grand reach of the Ruthless Variety program that you can hear him right here first. Exactly. Exactly. So look forward to that. Uh, also, we have a sponsor for today's program. We do. Rumble Up, uh, the premier GOP texting platform. Not only a sponsor, but Thomas... Uh, Peters, who I talked to, is, is a friend of the program. He listens to the show. Fantastic. Yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, if you don't know about Rumble Up, Rumble Up is a peer-to-peer texting platform. They work with a lot of the major Republican organizations, NRCC, NRSC, RGA, RSLC, tons of campaigns. We've used them at our consulting firm uh, on numerous projects. Uh, you know, Great technology, great partner for the program. Also, they've got an... I'm going to tease this a little bit. they got a nice... Um, little incentive for the minions Mm. if you text ruthless to 833-530-4400 you can help some of these senate campaigns as smug often likes to say that's right the red wave isn't something that's happening it's something we're doing that's right can we Um, do that number one more time i feel like you just like gave me a math lesson yeah text ruthless to 833-530-4400 and you can help Adam Laxalt's campaign or Joe O'Day's campaign, those two campaigns who are working with... Oh, that is rad. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. It's pretty cool. Also, we talk about it a lot more in the interview, so stick around for that. Dude, ah. what, what more can you ask from a sponsor? And they're like, listen, we're, we're actually going to try to help move it. They're, they're putting lead the on the ball. target themselves. There you go. God, you love it. You love to see it. Um, all right, so we'll look forward to more on that later in the program. What I want to start with, fellas, is the two unbelievable interviews <laughs> yeah. from this week. Since, since the last time we all got together and talked on Tuesday, there has been an incredible two interviews. The first, President Joe Biden went to CNN and talked with Jake Tapper. Uh, It was noteworthy for a number of reasons, not the least of which is what he said, which is insane. But he doesn't do interviews for obvious reasons. Yeah. Right? I mean, for obvious reasons, he doesn't do interviews. You will find out more about that as we talked. And then the second interview, uh, he doesn't also doesn't do interviews, and that's Fetterman, (laughs) the Senate candidate, uh, which... Yikes. Uh, We'll get into all of that, too. But um, listen, let's start with the Jake Tapper interview, right? So this is from Politico, their newsletter, who Biden is talking to off the record. When Jake Tapper sat down with Joe Biden for his one-on-one interview, which is airing on Tuesday night, if you missed it, I'm sure it's everywhere online. It takes a lot to get through it, though, let me just tell you. Uh, It wasn't the first time the two had spoken since the latter became president. The CNN host was in Ukraine earlier this year to report on the war. Multiple multiple people with knowledge of the call confirmed to Politico that Biden was watching Tapper's coverage and reached out to the anchor to offer some off-the-record thoughts. The reason I find this sort of fascinating is Trump took such a beating for being a president that watched cable news and would like call people off the record mm-hmm. and talk about their coverage or tweet about their coverage or whatever 
But like everything would suggest that this president watches as much, if not more, cable television than than his predecessor. But what's funny to me about this is like Trump would watch everything, right? He'd watch the good stuff that, you know, like Ban and he and everybody at Fox would be doing. And he'd watch the bad stuff and tweet about it, CNN and MSNBC. Seems like Biden basically just surrounds himself with sort of reinforcement. Yep, he's only siloed his information because the fact that like you often would see uh, Trump tweet going after people when they were lying about him on the air, like CNN or whatever, and uh, number one, journalists would lose their mind because like, oh my God, why is a president ever watching the news? And then number two, it shows that the information that he got, I mean, he was probably one of the best informed presidents because he was absorbing, like you said, all of it. You know, CNN trying to attack him, uh, conservative media, which was trying to support him. He saw the entire spectrum of what was going on. Yeah, for better or worse. Meanwhile, Biden is completely siloed, but but he watches it nonstop. Like he needs this affirmation of like, Hey, look! There's someone on TV who says that I actually can say three or four words in a row. <laughs> well, I think I think that's the most interesting part because it's like his flax are pushing this into the story as proof of life. Like, see, that's he's it. not he's not brain dead. That's it. He actually makes phone calls off the record. Yeah, yeah, he does. So, but in this Politico piece, they also say that he watches Morning Joe every morning. Oh, <laughs> and he starts his day with Morning Joe, and he speaks with Scarborough and Brzezinski. That's like that's probably the number one sign that someone is an awful person. Is they're in D.C. and watch more uh, Morning Joe. Like there's this group of people. They're a very small group, but they're truly terrible and awful people. Well, yeah, but I think it, this is doing two things. I think number one, this is the Biden folks demonstration project that he could run for re-election. Yeah, that that he has a lot of inputs. Like he's aware of what's out there in the ecosystem in the ether. Like he could run for president again. I think that's part of it. And then the other part, like the not the the nod to like Morning Joe, is like I think for the Biden folks who want him to run for re-election, like they feel like there's this sort of like liberal intelligentsia, these influencers, people like Morning Joe, yeah, who could be make or break for Biden's prospects in actually doing it again. I think that's, that's right. Really I, astute, yeah. I, I think that's totally right. I think there's a third layer which this White House is battling like hell to try to get out from underneath. Which is, he's quite obviously a liability to all Democrats. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants him in this state. Nobody wants to even do a fundraiser with the guy. And there's this sort of conventional wisdom that he can't fight himself out of really shitty approval ratings. And right? I, do, I really don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I think everyone right now, all our listeners, should be completely focused on helping Republican candidates across this country take the majorities in the House and the Senate. But I have a feeling that you've got some folks in Biden's circle who are looking forward and being like, you know, the morning after election day, they're going to look like complete idiots. There's going to be a lot of Dem candidates who get sunk because of them voting with Joe Biden and his policies, which have caused all these hardships for Americans. They're going to have a target painted on their back the morning after election day for how hard they're going to get their asses kicked. You, you, you just put your finger on something really important because the aftermath of this, there's going to be a bunch of Democrats who lost who are gonna be basically saying, the president in this administration provided no pushback Bingo. for me to use at all on the Republican narrative about this economy. And so they're like, we gotta get ahead of that. And shit. plus, like you've seen journals already start to dip their toes into being like, well, Biden isn't all there, maybe he shouldn't run. Right. 
that's also like helping to kind of like dump this old guy. Who do we have out there? Yeah, they're trying to get ahead of all of that. But in the midst of this interview, you see him drop his notes. <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> Didn't help his cause. Dude's like, <laughs> dude's like talking away, and then he just drops his notes. Like, first of all, what kind of interview do you have when you're just sitting there with note cards in front of you? Like, doesn't that strike me? I mean, I don't. Maybe people do that. I don't. I've never seen anybody do that. I've never seen anybody do it. It just like it strikes me as one of those things that's like. Uh, that's why he probably wears a diaper. Is like you know the guy cannot control. And they, 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 they're, <laughs> they're having a conversation. <laughs> that's a seamless transition. See, <laughs> <laughs> that's likely. But here's here's one of the things he says, right? And so, like, again, what he's trying to do is get out from underneath this horrible narrative. Yeah. In the process of that, he says a, quote, slight recession is possible. Slight. But I don't anticipate it. The, the guy who said billions, trillions, millions at the top of our show is now an expert on the economy. It's slight. That's a slight one. And I think what's really important for, for, for our listeners is to recognize the fact that According to the definition of a recession, we are currently in a recession. We're living in an insane time where the media works as this like unified body to cartel information from Americans, right? You yes. saw it happen with Hunter Biden's laptop. You're seeing it happen currently where we are in the midst of a recession, according to the definition that anyone who studied economics, myself included, was taught like day one. It's like, okay, everybody open your book to page one. So here's the definition of recession. Well, it's, Everyone knows that's what it is. We're in the midst of it. And the fact that the American president is denying it is 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 a problem. But the media being complicit and being like, hey, the president says maybe we'll have a recession. We have a recession right here. now. It's been here. It's another case where the national Democrat message being at odds with what local Democrats are trying to figure out how to answer for in their economically depressed districts are at odds because if you're running for congress in a district that has that's clearly in a recession high gas prices high grocery prices and the president who's in your party the figurehead is out there saying that it's not really a recession gas prices are really coming down downplaying every every Mm -hmm. difficulty that you're the people in your district are, are experiencing you're in a you're in a world of hurt you're in a world of hurt, and they, but they're just again. I think partially their own echo chamber. I mean, they just don't understand it. They, they, right? they don't get it. So this is from the Washington Post. Meanwhile, this is the backdrop for what this interview when he's saying like a slight recession. Uh, the three largest economies. This is according to the Washington Post. The three largest economies: the United States, China, and the Euro area will continue to stall. Pierre Olivia, what's his last name? Gorinchas. Unpronounceable. Uh, anyway, he's the IMF's <laughs> chief economist. <laughs> so name un- unpronounceable says, in short, the worst is yet to come. And for many people, 2023 will feel like a recession. It doesn't need to feel like a recession because it is right. one. Right. And it has been one since June. Again, I found it so hilarious when I, I tweeted out after this interview aired that like maybe somebody should inform the president we already have a recession. Correct. And like immediately get dive bombed by a bunch of lefties saying like, how could it be a recession when uh, unemployment rate is at, you know, whatever, three point whatever percent. I'm like, what, do you maybe just pick up a textbook? Please. Just pick up a textbook Please. and find out what There's it, something called a business cycle. And it is, is just incredible. And, and, and to this point, Democrats are their own worst enemy on this. The left is their own worst enemy on this because it's such a disconnect with what regular people are dealing with out there. And this is where the reckoning will come. Right. It's, it's a lot easier if you're a politician to meet people where they already are. 
you know, where you're actually, it's, this is what Bill Clinton understood, this whole I feel your pain thing. Yeah, like, I think, but like I th- doing that is, is so much more valuable than denying gravity for nine months. You're totally right, except the problem and the difference between where Bill Clinton was at this stage in his presidency and where Joe Biden is, is that he's already gone out on two occasions to say this totally unprecedented, completely partisan, massive plan that everybody thought was a bad idea will fix our economy. Right. Twice in two years. Right. First, it was the Recovery Act or whatever. Mm-hmm. that was just like a four trillion dollar boondoggle mm-hmm. to all of his political adversary or political friends. And then the second was this Inflation Reduction Act and everything that we've seen. Which is yet again, just to hand out to all his friends. It's the same thing. But it but it just back ended all this more cash into like his selected industries, which created more inflation. Right. So he doesn't have yeah. the capability of doing what Bill Clinton did. Well, at this point, he's just because he already said he solved it. Yeah. And, and yeah. also, Holmes, like uh, uh, for all the idiots who try and show up in your replies about the jobs thing, what was very interesting is Bank of America, their economist just released uh, a report where they anticipate that the U.S. is going to begin losing 175,000 jobs a month. Jeez. So the, like we've told you for months now on the show, the way these things work is when you have high inflation, people buy less. When people buy less companies, number one, freeze hiring, which we've already seen. And then when people continue to not buy any products, they end up with a backlog of products on the shelves. And they're like, well, we got to save costs somehow. We're going to start letting people go. And Bank of America sees it. It's clear as day to everybody except the President of the United States, who's like, maybe we'll get a recession. Number one, we're in one. Number two, you're having Bank of America say 175,000 jobs a month are going to start going. Mm. On top of the workforce that just never made it back to work, right? Mm. So this is according to CNN. Gas prices are on the rise, and most of the U.S. Uh, could soon hit a national average of $4 a gallon. Good Again, God. if you're talking about $4 a gallon, you're in a pretty good place right now because there is a, an exceptionally large part of this country. And I told you about the story about Nevada with the guy who took the picture saying 6 bucks a gallon. It's now 7 bucks a gallon. Seven bucks a My gallon God. in Nevada, right? So, so like, okay, what they were selling was bullshit, mm-hmm. and now it's evident to everyone that it's complete bullshit. Part of that spike followed last week's decision by OPEC to cut production by two million bar- barrels a day in an effort to lift prices. So you recall this president who was going to quote unquote hold Saudi Arabia accountable, like for what? exactly in his mind was unclear other than he wanted some Washington Post coverage about Jamal Khashoggi or something like that. Like, I mean, I don't, I can't figure out why it was that the hard line happened on Saudi Arabia, not say like, I don't know, Iran or Russia or China, but that's what he, his point of view was. But then gas prices started going up. So he made the, the uh, fist bump. They, they promptly take OPEC and go the other direction. Right. It's like either to deliberately fuck Joe Biden right. or they just don't care and he doesn't have any influence. I mean, either way, as an you, American, that's kind of sting. When you call a country a pariah, I mean, that's kind of a big step. When you say, like, I want to make the lives for you and your people much more difficult, which is Joe Biden's aim. Like, day one, we saw he crippled American energy independence. Then he goes after Saudi Arabia being like, this is I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make this a pariah country. And then he sees, as everyone predicted, energy prices in the U.S. start to skyrocket. And, and the next thing you know, he's out there fist bumping MBS. It's the exact opposite of Teddy Roosevelt's maxim, speak softly and carry a big stick. Because what they know is that Joe Biden has shut down 
domestic production in America. They know that the Keystone Pipeline, which would have pumped 800,000 barrels a day, so that's almost half of what OPEC has cut. Just remember this, that the Keystone Pipeline is more than just a talking point. It is a lifeline for this economy. And Joe Biden shut it down day one. They knew he shut it down. They knew he was going to shut down domestic energy production in lands all all around the country. So they called his bluff. He's very weak. So they have the leverage. They have I mean, the leverage. that's the thing. If you're going to take somebody to the woodshed, you better damn well make yeah. sure they don't have leverage over you. Yeah. Right? Because these guys are just laughing all the way to the bank. Now we're going to have to end up paying whatever price that they set because we're responsible for importing that shitty oil. Rather than doing it here, and and again, like you know, speaking of leverage, is I, I I recalled the other day going back four years to when when President Trump was in office, the midterms were coming, and I was texting friends and especially my friends who were Dems and being like, man, like what are you guys running on? The economy is great. <laughs> I remember prices were low, gas is cheap, things are going great, right? And now you you fast forward to four years, and you're in a situation where the president has completely lost all leverage, like. Half the reason that uh, President Trump and, and Jared got so many of these peace deals done is it came from a position of strength. American energy independence. For the first time, we're a net exporter. We're a net exporter of energy. When America is strong and independent, the rest of the world recognizes it. And when America has to come begging, they know America's weak. Not to mention most of them peg their currency at some level to the health of the dollar, right? And, and like when you're seeing this global recession, global inflation, like we're causing a lot of That's that. That's the thing. Right? I mean, we, we th- th- what this guy has done to our relationships around the world by just being a horrible steward of the American economy is significant. It's going to take a lot to try to get that stuff back. But listen, we talked about uh, energy costs. Again, bunch of articles, this one in NPR, about how home heating costs in the winter are going to be through the roof. Like, of course they will. This one caught my eye in Politico healthcare. Uh, Inflation is coming for Biden. Yeah, Like, you never hear about everything they talk about. is like, oh, Obamacare, BFD, right? They're like, oh, it's so great. We love it. Rising health care costs are poised to become the next big battle for President Joe Biden's war against inflation. It's unlikely he'll be able to declare victory in time for a 2024 re-election bid. Well, let me just tell you, they only have one solution to all of these things. And it started with Obamacare. They just rob Peter to pay Paul. That's what they do. Right? I mean, it's not, it's not about actually reducing costs. They never do that. They don't do that. Like education, your education costs are too high. Okay, we'll just tax the shit out of people and we'll give people free education. And it's like, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't ever compound. And so like what they'll do when you read an article like that, I guarantee you somebody in the White House right now is working on a plan to try to back end proceeds from like the drug industry right. or proceeds from like, hospitals or just as a, like a basically a bailout to the insurance company so your bill looks lower yeah they all they need to do is take money from one side of the healthcare industry yeah. and shove it into the insurance industry right <laughs> and so the insurance industry will slightly lower your bill and they'll declare victory you'll you'll be surprised how expensive things are when they cost less through the insurance <laughs> it's yeah. just amazing it's just amazing we have one audio clip that I think you gotta hear because this 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 totally totally uh, in my view summarizes this administration's position on all of this and so I'm wondering if the president bears any responsibility with his policies for the inflation and, uh, and what they're calling a stalling economy what he did is put forth the American rescue plan which by the way was only voted by Democrats that was able to turn back on our economy 
Karine Jean-Pierre. She is just Boy, is she the worst. She? she is the absolute worst. I really didn't think we could get worse than Saki, but they were like, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To follow up Saki and end up looking terrible, that's that's a special talent. Well, she's done it. Uh, <laughs> so this one, the second interview from Fetterman. Uh, this is a dude running for Senate who's who's obviously physically incapable in a lot of ways, so much so that NBC News, he figured he was going to be on safe footing. He invites an, MB, an NBC News reporter in to do an interview, his first in-person interview. Boy, was that a mistake. And, and, well, and, and the thing is, is that this isn't like NBC went hard in the paint. They were like total kid gloves. The thing is, he can't even rise to the occasion of like, they put like a computer in front of him with like the words in size 50 font of like what's being said to him and give him time to read the words. Cause like he wasn't even looking at the reporter. He's like trying to read the screen and make sense of what's happening. And the charade here is vote, you know, the intention is actually the media being like, listen, we're trying to trick voters into looking past that he's completely unfit for office. Uh, as a lieutenant governor, he lied to voters by not telling them how bad his well, state of health was to, to begin with and continues to lie. Continues to lie about it, right? And, and so much so that you've got a whole left-wing media that is, is attempting to try to shield from you how this whole thing goes on. This reporter, God bless her, had the integrity to at very least acknowledge reality acknowledge reality and she, the quote in here we had a monitor set up so he could read my questions because he still has lingering auditory processing issues as a result of his stroke yeah and 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 the reaction to that simple fact which is true which everyone can clearly see the left-wing media ecosystem on twitter freaked out they went nuts listen to this audio of how she characterized their meeting uh, we had a monitor set up so that he could read my questions because he still has lingering auditory processing issues as a result of the stroke, which means he has a hard time understanding what he's hearing. Now, once he reads the question, he's able to understand. You'll hear he also still has some uh, problems, some challenges with speech. And I'll say, Katie, that just in some of the small talk prior to uh, the interview before the closed captioning was up and running, it did seem that uh, he had a hard time understanding our our conversations. So look, you can make your decision about whether that's important to you or not. I think the larger issue for me is the fact that this has been hidden entirely yeah. from the public, entirely from the voting public until this one reporter who works for NBC and God bless her, had a touch of integrity actually revealed the theater of I it I mean, all. so, I mean, I think everybody needs to take a step back and realize where we are right now where it's like if 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 an amazon alexa was unable to understand what i'm saying and amazon was like listen just type what you want it to do ask it what the weather is today you have to type it in give it a couple seconds because it has a difficulty understanding auditory cues <laughs> i'd be like are you serious bro like <laughs> get like a, what get did i new- pay my money for but that's an alexa that's not a u.s senator <laughs> like the bar's got to be higher for a u.s senator than some damn alexa well they, they talk around it so much they just help him so much there's a medical term for his disorder it's called aphasia and there is a medical definition that goes along with it it's the loss of ability to understand or express speech caused by brain damage. This guy has brain damage 
from his stroke. And reporters on the left are doing everything they can to pretend otherwise. Well, that's what I want to jump into here, because this is what actually I found so striking. It was an objective report. I mean, look, if anything, she gave him a little bit of kid gloves in terms of the questioning. Like, I didn't hear her grill, or what? grill him on letting all the criminals she was, in she Philadelphia was a, out. She was, exactly. She was as fair as anybody could be. But the, but the protection racket, the liberal media just oh. freaked out. It's so, so great. So Stephanie Rule, we, she's a, a, a <laughs> annual contender for the Hack Madness Championship. There were no issues when, with John Fetterman's speech when I interviewed him, and there was nothing out of the ordinary. But I do not know Dasha Burns' experience. Oh so she's like our colleague, right? right? So she's trying to like give the benefit of the doubt. Like, I don't know what her experience was, but he was perfectly fine when I interviewed him. Oh, really? Well, she told were you in the room? She told you what her experience was. Yeah. So you're you're saying your colleague is lying? Yeah, you're, she's questioning. Well, I, it sounds to me like she's calling her a rookie. I, I mean, she basically. Really is, dude. Here's another guy. Here's my interview with John Fetterman from a few days ago. The notion that he wasn't able to understand is mind-lumbingly false. Again, not a single one of these people were in the room with John Fetterman. Not one of them, right? Kara Swisher. Oh, my God. Who is actually a horrible person. I I want to make sure that's in print, and I can quote it on saying, Kara Swisher is a horrible person. You were on the record, sir. Uh, She says, sorry to say, but I talked to John Fetterman for over an hour without stop or any aids, and this just is just nonsense. Maybe this reporter is just bad at small talk. Wow. Wow. She's like, attack, maybe, maybe the reporter is the terrible at her job, not the person who suffered a traumatic that, brain. Like, Yeah, that's what know. we're supposed to believe. I, I noticed that there's no policing on the left of you know targeted harassment of a upstanding journalist who's brave enough to tell the truth especially a woman here it's not this sort of stuff about her being bad at small talk or her experience isn't described as misogynistic oh it's weird so, right it's not sexist and here's the thing oh, but is, what about the power of journalism right what and happened that's yeah. weird and kara swisher went on she made this a thread of like awful opinions where she goes on she was <laughs> like listen a lot of like silicon valley billionaires i know are autistic so like this should be like totally normal. We should accept somebody having had mo- like a stroke, which causes impairment. Which the comparison of the two is so ridiculous. The amount of like how journalists have rushed to try to shield Fetterman from scrutiny that he richly deserves. There was this great thread uh, from front of the program, Matt Gorman, where his father had suffered a, a you know a very serious stroke, and, and he said, "I can tell you firsthand." You know, it is actually extremely unfair to people who've been through experiences, families who've been through experience, to try and just like say, "Oh, listen, it's just a stroke." Like I've seen, uh, there was a journal who was like, "Any journalist who uses contact lenses, guess what? You're also using a medical device to help you like look around the world." It's yeah, like, but you, dude, are you comparing a contact lens right. to someone right. suffering a traumatic stroke, which exactly. has affected their brain's Ex- ability exactly. to work? You're not putting on contact lenses because you had brain damage, right? By the way, the left likes talking about this because the other topic that's on the top of minds of people in Pennsylvania, we've mentioned this several times on the show, is crime. Yeah, yeah. Crime is through the roof. People won't go to Phillies games because they're worried about the city. Like, there is a problem in this in this state with crime, and Oz is the only candidate ready to do something about it. The lefties know that, and so they want to talk about anything but it. And I have mentioned it before. Like, every Republican candidate, it doesn't matter what district you're running in. It doesn't matter what state you're running in. Talk about crime. This is an issue that every American, it doesn't matter if they're a Democrat, doesn't matter if they're Republican, doesn't matter if they're independent. Every single American is seeing the effect of rising crime in their communities. It doesn't matter where you are. 
You know, like uh, uh, we had the, uh, the uh, Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor of New York, has a shooting outside his home like a month after someone at one of his rallies tried to stab him. And this is someone who's like running for governor. What do you think life is like for like, uh, you know, the average American in this country? I don't think anyone feels that like, hey, you know what? In the past two years, given that Democrats control the House, the Senate, the uh, the White House, every every Democrat has signed on with this idea of defunding the police, opening the borders. I feel safer. There's a, you can't find a single American. No, not a single one. No, 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 because Democrats are the reason why crime has risen. They, they try to, the same thing they do with the economy, they try to do with the summer of 2020 when all these cities burnt because of crime out of control. And um, I just, voters are tired of, tired of hearing uh, that they're not supposed to believe their lying eyes. Well, with that said, I think we should go ahead and get to my interview with our sponsor for today's episode, Rumble Up. This is Thomas Peters. I want to welcome to the program Thomas Peters from Rumble Up. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be in the studio. It's uh, it's always great to have somebody on as a sponsor who's also a friend of the program. You know? Avid listener. <laughs> Recent but avid listener. That's great, man. That's great. Um, so, texting. Um, I think a lot of people in... 2020 with COVID and everything got sort of a first taste of how critical this can be for campaigns. Um, and, you know, now people are starting to see the value in it for things like, you know, not only like fundraising, and I know everyone is listening to this, I'm sure you get fundraising text and you can be annoyed by them. But if you look at the at the Q3 fundraising reports, um, they're important too. But they're not just fundraising. There's also GOTV. There's volunteer recruitment. There's event recruitment. There's all of this important stuff, the nuts and bolts of campaigns that is increasingly being done through texting. Um, how did you get in this line of work? Great question. Uh Originally, my company uh, built custom uh, smartphone apps for volunteers. We built the official Ted Cruz app uh, in 2016, helped him win the Iowa caucuses. Nice. We built the official Trump app in 2016, um, absolutely outperformed Hillary's app. And the most popular uh, feature on the Trump app was actually an early version of peer-to-peer texting. It allowed people to send a pre-populated message to people in their phone contact book. And after 2016, we kind of took stock at what we'd done, and we realized the texting was the thing that the, the folks on the app enjoyed the most and had the most impact. Um, and so that got us down the road of being like, okay, let's let's go all in on texting. Yeah. And so in 2018, we uh, released the first version of Rumble Up. And um, now we're working with all five Republican committees as their official white label partner. So it's grown very quickly because texting is the most visible channel. Um, 97% of text messages are opened and read within 90 seconds. So that's the most important thing. And secondly, there's no gatekeepers at this point. It's not big social. So it's a way for Republican campaigns to get directly in contact with their voters and audiences like nothing else. Well, and that's the thing that I love about texting and... Um, you know, we've dealt with on the Hill, you know, a number of Republican senators in particular who've been, you know, very upset at Google for what they see as um, sort of filtering and algorithmic uh, filtering of Republican emails, fundraising emails, GOTV emails, all of this stuff that's really important for getting out supporters and volunteers and voters ahead of the election that you 
you know, you'll send an email and it'll go to people's spam. And, you know, with texting, as long as you have, um, you know, all of the correct procedures and processes, as I know RumbleUp does, um, you can get in people's phones with important messages around the election. That's right. And not just, you know, Google and the Gmail problem. You've got Facebook and Meta doing the same thing where there's going to be no new ad creative allowed after November 1st. Um, the election's on November 8th, and there's a lot of things that are going to happen in those final eight days. So texting uh, ends up being the last dollars that the campaign spends. Right, right. And then also, you know, I mean, all these campaigns and, and having worked with a ton of them, you know, you're cash strapped in, in, in the fall. At least you think you are. And then the last two weeks happen, and like manna from heaven, the dollars come in because people are like, let's do this. Let's win, right? And so, you know, especially digital donations just kind of go through the roof. And, you know, on the digital side, we always talk about this hockey stick effect, right? That like you grind it out for a year and a half, um, you know, to raise money online. And then suddenly in October... You know, because people are getting inundated by the ads and there's increasing awareness or they're watching TV, um, you know, that hockey stick takes effect. And so the dollars come into the campaign. It's like, how are we going to spend these? Right. (laughs) It's pretty hard. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the answer a lot of times is texting. Um, And that's a that's a great thing. I mean, I always have to we always have to remember people are busy. You know, right. they wake up every day, and especially in the Biden economy, they're extremely busy. They're working two jobs. Um, saving democracy is not <laughs> something that is top of mind, and texting can help make it top of mind. So even though we've got in a great, I think, you know, really great signs on the enthusiasm question uh, when it comes to Republican voters being excited to go out and vote, um, you can't win just with your enthusiastic voters. You also have to win with your distracted voters, with your voters who, you know, are on the road 12 hours a day like truckers like how do you get their vote and in 2020 during covid campaigns found that texting was an amazing way to help walk people through the process wherever they were and especially in 2022 with redistricting you've got a lot of people now who have to figure out wait a minute i used to vote here now right there new polling locations sometimes new members of congress right and you know all these states have updated their um you know early voting and not just the locations, but the dates that you're allowed to do it or, you know, absentee mail-in rules and all this sort of stuff. We dealt with all that in 2020. What I like to, to say about texting is it helps you, you know, if you watch baseball, manufacture runs, right? Like like you said, enthusiasm's great. And we want everybody who's enthusiastic to, to vote to show up on election day. But texting is one of those things that helps you manufacture runs in baseball you know bunt and get somebody into scoring position bank some votes go get people who have an absentee ballot to turn in that absentee ballot have the people who are um you know want to vote early to show up early and vote right so that like when you come into election day you've manufactured some runs you banked some votes so that you don't have such an uphill climb on election day to offset these democrats who are all still scared of COVID, don't leave their homes and vote by mail it also lets you chase after those truly late deciders. And I feel like people who are late deciders three weeks out are actually late deciders until they're actually in the voting booth. And so a lot of times it's like getting that last message in front of them before they show up to make that conversion. So, you know, a really good texting program 
Um, we see we saw it in 2018 give uh, Governor DeSantis a 10% boost when we were active in like the Florida panhandle. Um, I think typically a good texting program can give you the same lift as a really good door-to-door canvassing program. But just like uh, not all canvassing firms are equal, not all texting vendors are equal. So you got to make sure that you're going with some uh, vendor that you've really vetted um, to make sure that that experience like at the door or in like in the person's phone via text is an extremely positive one. Right. Because you're investing precious resources into this. Right. Yeah, no, I think it, it can also complement, like you're saying, complement the rest of what you're doing in the field or political side of a campaign, right? Like where you're going and knocking door to door, right? Or like where you're sending direct mail for GOTV, or who you're, you know, you call uh, on a campaign to ask them, are you going to vote? Will you pledge to vote for our candidate? Uh, Texting is a great way to follow up to chase those people, to chase their ballots, really, mm-hmm. and make sure that they either turn them in or vote early or vote on election day. That's what I love about texting. I wish more people <laughs> used it, you know? We've gotten a lot better at it. Uh, it's, I One of my favorite phrases is that Democrats invent, Republicans perfect. Yeah. So Democrats technically invented peer-to-peer texting on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but Republicans have absolutely perfected it um, in terms of like just raw scale of like how much we text. Yeah. We have to we have to be innovative. Uh, we have to fight asymmetrically because we have fewer resources. And um, so that's that's been exciting to see. I think the other exciting element is just how much more creative Republican texting is in general. It's so, more entertaining. So I wanted to ask you about that. Like, you know, what are some of the most creative ways you've seen Republicans using texting? So first of all, they don't fall into this weird thing that Democrats do with texting, which is to send you an entire email in the form of a text. <laughs> you know, my mom got like a, you know, 2000 character message yeah. that was just like, you know, just was paragraphs it from, and paragraphs. Was it from Beto O'Rourke? <laughs> and all of his cousins. Yeah, you right. Know, it was just, you know, it's it's just crazy. So Republicans um, have to have to entertain. And so we're big proponents of multimedia messaging. So that means uh, that means not just like really crisp, cool graphics, infographics, explainers, but funny GIFs. Yeah. You know, if you get someone, it's, you know, most texts are not solicited. People weren't expecting to receive it. And so if you can get someone to smile, though, and kind of laugh about, like, okay, that's kind of funny, then they're listening. You've got their attention, just like a good canvasser. Like, if you've got a great right. smile and you knock on the door and your first thing is like, hey, do you, you know, that, that first five seconds right. is when you form the impression. It's gone even farther, though. Um, in 2020, we created this technology called Enhanced Video Texting, which is a fancy way of saying we can take your video, like your made-for-TV 30-second ad, right. and put it directly inside a text message while keeping like high quality and audio that doesn't suck. That I, I've, u- I've used it. I've used it firsthand, and I love it because not just GOTV, but sometimes you've got these, these great, great ads, right? And, you know, there's a pr- approval process or like you said, with like the restriction period for some digital ads that we're going to run into here in the last week of the election. It's like, I want this everywhere and I want it everywhere right now. Like I want all the voters in the state. If we're doing rapid response after a debate or, you know, we put up some very creative ad, I want everyone to see it now. Right. And like the only way to really do that is through texting. So much so. And this is really exciting to see this cycle in some of these statewides where TV is already like wall to wall sold out um, or prohibitively expensive for some of these smaller campaigns, there's a lot of serious investment in under the radar video texting to massive audiences. These are like, you know, six, 
figure seven figure spends um just those are under the radar they're not captured in nielsen ratings they're not you know right. people aren't measuring points right. on this stuff right but people are seeing it like eyeballs are on this stuff and i think we're going to see some really interesting um closings happening that well, and, way. Then, and then also you know because i'm constantly looking at reservations and media spend and how many grps and for our listeners who don't work on campaigns grps gross ratings points the way that we calculate you know how much reach and frequency to voters there are in these DMAs, you know, designated media areas, like where um, if you're in a market, um, you know, how often a person in that market would see your ad on television. But like there is a diminishing returns to that. Like when you're running 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 GRPs in a market, you know, what does another thousand mean for somebody who might be distracted, might be like on their phone or their computer or they're making dinner and they're watching that ad on television? Look, I think TV ads are obviously important, but at some point, are there enough? And is there another way to get that 30-second spot in front of a voter who's going to open it 97% of the time in the first 90 seconds? And you're going to have their undivided attention then instead of just their partial attention. Right. And they're not mutually exclu- exclusive right. strategies because you either get that second screen reinforcement, oh, that TV ad that I kind of like saw yeah. you know, or skipped, whatever, now it's in my inbox and now there's actually a link for me to like follow up and like learn more about this. Or it's hitting cord cutters or people who are difficult to find on connected TV. So it's saturation. Um, and also, like I always say, like, you know, you get basically like 100 gross rating points guaranteed because every single person right. that text message opens and sees it if you're using Rumble Up. Right, right. That's a good way of putting it. Hopefully that's helpful with the TV vendors. <laughs> um, I don't make the budgets. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so if you're listening to this and you are, you know, an activist, you're a, a person who Uh, follows Republican campaigns, maybe volunteers every once in a while. Like, what is in it for you, um, you know, if a campaign uses Rumble Up? The knowledge that you're having massive impact. I mean, literally from your couch uh, while you're watching your favorite sports team, uh, you can be texting out the vote. Uh, You can be engaging in conversations. You can be using smart tagging technology. One volunteer can text 10,000 voters an hour. Yeah. on a lot of campaigns, they'll actually save texting as a carrot, as a, as a reward for people who hit doors and do phone calls, because that's really that's hard work and massive props and respect to people who do that. Right. But at, at times it can be demoralizing too. You know, that's the thing. You know, nobody wants to annoy people, right? Like nobody wants people to you know get into fights with people at the door. But it's part of the process, and we know we have to do it because it's important. Texting, you know, is now a compliment to that. Right. And by the way, especially it's not fun in North Dakota right now. Like, I mean, <laughs> some of these places, um, especially, I mean, not just for the weather, but also the distance. So, and like the cost of gas. So, right. these are all factors that campaigns have, u- have had in mind as they shift more budget into voter contact via texting. So, um, yeah, from a volunteer perspective, it's fun. And the responses back are hilarious. You know, like people, like you you text someone and you get, you know, some F-offs and you mark yeah. them as like, okay, well, not a supporter. That was a very quick way of just knowing which side that person's on. Um, but you'll get real real questions back. And people genuinely don't know. Like I just moved to, to Virginia this, this year and the lines have been redrawn. I had to go on Google to find out like who this school board person was. I would love if this school board person would come to me and then I could just ask them my questions. I've got, I have my two top issues. Where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on that? And those kind of conversations can happen through text very quickly. Again, while you're on a commercial break. Yeah. 
That's awesome. That's just awesome. Um, so if people want to get involved with some campaigns that are using Rumble Up, how do they do that? Yeah, so we've got some a really exciting offer. Um, I'll let you uh, share the phone number. If you text in Ruthless to this phone number, we will add you to our um, elite minions bench of hell yeah of awesome volunteers uh, particularly for the laxalt and oday campaigns so we can get you connected as volunteer texters to help text out the vote and close these races down that's great you know so people can help make the red wave happen so they're going to be helping adam laxalt and joe oday um that is t- again the number here i got it is uh text ruthless to 833-530-4400 minions can get involved sign up to volunteer help send text messages for adam laxalt and joe O'Day. that's great that's great um well it's just fantastic thomas i'm so glad you were able to come in here to studio see where the magic happens um, and I'm just, it's always great to have somebody who sponsors the show who, who listens to this show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for everything you're doing because before Ruthless, like we didn't have this and I didn't know how much I missed it <laughs> until I found you guys. <laughs> really appreciate it. One more time for our listeners, text Ruthless to 833-530-4400. Get involved. Make the red wave happen. He really is one of the top innovators in the party. He's a, I mean, the guy's got a lot of experience doing this. Obviously, he talked about, um, you know, his work with Cruz and with Trump in 2016 and, you know, all the ways that, you know, campaigns can use texting to get out the vote. I mean, look, it's very, very important, Mm -hmm. you know, as all of these campaigns move towards Election Day and suddenly you get, you know, dollars in the door, manna from heaven. You know, voters are just v- get very, very engaged that last 14 days mm-hmm. that you find out a way to use that money very efficiently. And I think one of the best ways of doing that is texting. I'm a big, big fan of it. What I'm not a big fan of, and this is, I think, a really important topic. I obviously get very worked up about these things. But there was a breaking news uh, piece on Tuesday night from yes. CNN. yes. I, and you had an excellent tweet on this, and I was like, "Listen, we got to let Duncan just go ham on this." I was just so it's outraged. like bring back Duncan with Duncan, yeah, because this is just like Duncan perfect segment for him. So uh, you know the RussiaGate fake news mm-hmm. that um, tried to hobble the the Trump administration for his entire four years, and arguably is one of the reasons he didn't win re-election. We have found out now that shortly before the 2016 election. The FBI offered retired British spy Christopher Steele, the author of the dossier, Mm -hmm. up to $1 million to prove the explosive allegations in his dossier about Donald Trump, and he was unable to. Mm. Hmm. They offered him a $1 million to prove this shit, and he couldn't do it. For a million dollars, I'd prove Santa's real, dude. (laughs) 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 But it's like... You know, like in high school where uh, you're in like a math, math class and you had to give your answer, but you also had to show your work. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like that. You know, the guy had had all of these conclusions that he apparently, you know, was drawing from all this wealth of experience that he had. And they're like, all right, here's a million dollars if you can prove it. And he's like, oh, no, sorry, can't. And, and, And to me, this is this story is so wild. And like the backlash that uh uh 
of all places, CNN reported this. Of all places, CNN reports this. And the backlash they got from, like, you know, your standard libs who were like, what the hell are you talking about? Donald Trump is a KGB agent and, like, Vladimir Putin was president. The backlash they got from these facts being reported about what we already know. I, I think every listener of this show knows about essentially we were all, you know, every American had a conspiracy perpetrated upon them. Right. Where these FBI agents who. A here's conspiracy a th- by our own FBI. That's the thing yeah. is like here you had a situation where they were like, we will give you one million dollars to prove what you allege is true. He was like, nah, man. Right. right. Like, I'm not going to do it. And mind you. Mind you. Barack Obama is president. Correct. This is the run-up to the 2016 election. Why do you think the FBI wanted to know if it was true so quickly? Mm. Was it maybe to de- derail Donald Trump's presidential campaign? And I mean, then we've already gotten on record testimony of, of FBI agents being like, yes, we need to do everything we can to derail Donald Trump. Even, even crazier and more ironic for people who are alleging a conspiracy between Donald Trump and Russia, this is more from the article here, the cash offer was made during an overseas October 2016 meeting between Steele, again, a a British spy and several top FBI officials who were trying to corroborate Steele's claims. Wait, a cash offer? Cash offer. Bro. Right. So the person that they allege worked with Russia, had a conspiracy with Russia. They were overseas right before the 2016 election with a former British spy trying to collude with him. I want everyone, like, the amount of money I pay in taxes is ridiculous. The amount of money all of us pay in taxes is ridiculous. And to think some of it ends up in the suitcase of these clowns overseas trying to be like, hey, Christopher Seal, in the, here's a million dollars. In the, Just yeah. tell us, bro. And the only reason we know about any of this is because of the Durham investigation. Thank you. So basically yeah. how, how this all got found out is FBI supervisor analyst Brian Auten testified that Steele never got the money because he could not prove the allegations. Final expected trial Durham investigation returned spotlight to flawed Trump Russia dossier. Otten also also said Steele refused to provide the names of any of his sources during that meeting and that Steele didn't give the FBI anything during that meeting that corroborated the claims in his explosive dossier. Okay, so this is where I think it gets very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, because, you know, Boy Scout, malignant narcissist James Comey (laughs) goes to Trump Tower to tell President-elect Trump that this information is out there. Oh, oh, shucks, sir. Like, I want to make sure you're aware of all of this information, you know, because other people have it. The media has it. Of course, nobody's writing it. And what's the reason why nobody's writing it? Because it's so salacious and unverified, and most people doubt its, its authenticity, that no respectable news organization is going to write about it. Nope. Right? But you know what's going to get them to write about it? What? James Comey walks down from that fucking meeting like a little Boy Scout into his limo, types up all of his notes, and then has his buddy leak knowledge of the meeting, giving the media the hook that they needed to take this fake fucking dossier and turning it into national news. And he knew it was fake at the time. He knew that a million dollars had been offered offered to the guy who came up with it to to prove that it was real. And so he fucking knew it was a setup. He did a setup on the President of the United States. This is very key. And, 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 And just like the kernel of information here that's important is... The FBI offers a guy a million dollars to corroborate all this madness about like, oh my gosh, Donald Trump's being on hookers or whatever. And then they're not able to corroborate that information. And the FBI is like, 
oh well let's run with it what? anyways right let's leak but, this to but, the press let's have buzzfeed publish this garbage which we cannot corroborate as true and and and, and two more things because a lot of people on the left as i see as their response to this is like oh well they didn't they didn't leak it the media already had it yeah john mccain had it and it's like well you think those people in the media reach out to the fbi for comment you know, to, to, to check, to gut check, to say, hey, man, is this real or not? The FBI, who knew it was fucking fake? Yep. James Comey, who leaked it to get people to write about it, who knew it was fucking fake? They leaked the meeting in Trump Tower to make a fake scandal happen. The Our FBI did that. They they colluded with this former Russian or British spy to do it. I mean, that. And imagine being James Comey. You're a very dumb guy, Right. Essentially, you're like nine feet tall. Any ladder can take your job. You have no purpose in life. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's just you're so- going to bullshit and try to get a book deal. And what did he do? He, he bullshitted, got a book deal. That's what, what makes me the most angry is as a country for years, we had these journos and these like, oh, yes, I'm a foreign policy expert. All these clowns got book deals lying Dude, to Americans. But it's just all of them got their like, like their massive million dollar advances. All of them got paid, and now only now, as a footnote, as a tweet that sent out at like 10 p.m. CNN's like, turns out all that shit was lies, guys. I, Everything for years that the American people suffered through, that the American president was being compromised by his own FBI, by the media lying to the American public. While all these journos are making millions off their book deals of bullshit, being like, yes, uh, our president is a KGB agent. For years, the American people have this lie perpetrated upon them while journos get rich and, and, and we don't get any apology from any of them. It's such None a- of them are going to be like, oh, you are a dis- you know, New York Times, Washington Post, you're, you're a disinformation outlet. You're getting kicked off Twitter. That doesn't happen. It's such it's just a, another day. It's it's such a bizarre farce that we've tolerated now for six years in this country that like I I can't even stay mad about it. Like I have to just laugh. It's like somebody made a like sold their soul. It's like it's like Hillary Clinton the day after she lost that election twenty sixteen, like kneeled down and prayed to the devil and was like And he was like, You're back <laughs> again, bro. <laughs> How many times do we have to go through this? And, and look at her great fortune. The devil <laughs> is the real. The devil is real, and he happens to be a Democrat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she she, she like, didn't yield to anybody. She was just, like, it's me again. Here's what I need you to do, devil. <laughs> it's just, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So I've chosen now to laugh about it. Anyway, um, I think we should get to this interview uh, with Governor Ricketts. What do you say? Outstanding. Let's do it. I want to welcome to the program a uh, just an incredibly successful guy, incredibly successful governor, somebody we've wanted to have on here for a long time because he's one of one of the more thoughtful members of the Republican Party anywhere. Uh, but he's also had a great two terms as governor of Nebraska. Pete Ricketts, welcome to the program. Well, hey, thank you very much, Josh. But man, don't play it up so much. Maybe you like wrap up with that stuff at the end and people go, okay, I heard the conversation. It's probably like that. But man, to sell it like that up front, that's just setting me up for failure. Well, I got to give you your due, right? I mean, you've got a lot of fans around here and you're and you're getting more by the moment. Uh, let me start with the news aspect of, of everything that you've been dealing with, because what we want is the journos to go away after the first t- five minutes so we can get the rest of this going and have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so, fair enough. so obviously, with the impending uh, retirement of Ben Sass, there has been a movement 
basically everywhere. It started in Nebraska, but now it seems omnipresent uh, amongst uh, senators, amongst basically anybody involved in the Republican Party to try to encourage you to be a senator, essentially. Right. And I saw that you put out a statement about how you were going to handle that. Uh, Maybe you can explain uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, obviously we're still waiting to see what the timeline is from Ben Sass. So uh, Senator Sass was down on Florida's campus this week. Uh, I believe he'll be interviewed in November for the job. And then of course, it'll be up to the board of trustees to make a decision as to whether to offer him a job or not, but I'm quite confident they will because he's the only candidate right now. So it seems pretty <laughs> likely. Um, so, and, and then, it, then it gets down to what's, uh, when is he taking the job? And what's the timeline for his resignation? So what I said was that if I am interested in pursuing this job, I will not appoint myself. I will leave that to the next governor and go through the process of whatever that, gov- you know, that governor who I expect to be Jim Pillen, um, uh, that governor you know, chooses to go through to decide who's going to be. But under state law, the governor has 45 days to select that next senator. And then that senator would run in a special election in 2024 and then be run again back on cycle in 2026. So there's a couple of elections coming up from who, uh, whoever gets appointed for this position. And so we're just kind of waiting now to see what happens with uh, the University of Florida and Senator Sass and the timing and then we can put together some more plans for how this might all work out. But it's just, again, until we know more, there's just not any point in speculating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, if your successor has the wisdom of appointing you and you have the uh, wherewithal to accept the responsibility, I know there's a line around the block of people around here and in Nebraska that would love you to do it. So I got well, to imagine, imagine you've had a basically a hotline of your, your phone ringing off the hook. <laughs> There have been a few people who called me, yes. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get on to the fun stuff. We can check the journals out. That's all we got for news. <laughs> we're going to talk, talk about fun stuff. Listen, I think your background is fascinating, right? And there's not a lot of people that, I mean, they know the Ricketts family, right? And they know of all of your success as a family. They know about your personal success. They know about your term as governor. They don't know a lot about sort of how you grew up and sort of what makes you, you. Uh, I just kind of want to start with that. Sure. Well, you know, we grew up in Omaha and, you know, my mom and dad are originally from a, a smaller, small town about uh, 50 minutes south of Omaha called Nebraska City. And actually, that's where I was born. My siblings were all born there as well. And I did live there when I was really young. But by the time uh, I hit kindergarten, we were in Omaha. And that's where I you know, started grade school. And, uh, you know, my dad was the entrepreneur. My mom was uh, a, actually a public school teacher to the to we kids came along. And, you know, we grew up in a very middle class neighborhood, middle class kind of things, because a lot of the success in Ameritrade didn't really come until, uh, frankly, I got out of college. Yeah. So, that I mean, so, that's the, one of the yeah. things and why I wanted to start with this is because nobody knows that, right? I mean, they, people who know you know that because they know kind of the way that you operate and you have just a, sort of a never forget where you came from type mentality with that. But everybody sort of sees the the success of the Ricketts family and, and, and sort of thinks that you grew up with a silver spoon. Not the case. No, I grew up very middle class. You know, uh, I, there were plenty of times when, uh, you know, mom would sell us on making pancakes for dinner on Friday night because that was inexpensive. You know, there was always Sometimes it was it got a little short toward the end of the month when it came to meals like that. Uh, we didn't really go out to eat very often, 
And uh, there were times when the chair actually held the door to the oven closed. <laughs> they couldn't get that fixed right away. The dishwasher in our family was us kids because the dishwasher didn't work for a long time. So, but that, you know, typical of a lot of families, right? You, you figure out how to make ends meet and you do without until you, you can get something fixed and that sort of thing. And especially when dad was setting, starting the company, I think I was probably like 12 years old or 13 years old at the time when he started the company, you know, dad would come home at night, we'd eat dinner and then we'd go back down to the office. He would, you know, mom and dad would take um, all of his kids down and mom and dad would work like opening up accounts or something like that. And we kids, we would just like play down in the office and hang out there with our parents, which again, is a lot of families are like that, right? The kids get uh, towed along and doing the family business. So. You got to learn to be pretty entrepreneurial with your play things when you're dealing with like staplers and paper clips as play as toys, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they had these these dumb terminals because it was a brokerage job. So these, these dumb CRT terminals. So we'd pretend like we were all cool playing on a computer or like flying a spaceship or something like that, but they didn't really do anything. <laughs> you, couldn't play, you couldn't play actually any games. All, all the games were in your imagination because the screen was just blank. Yeah, okay. that's classic. I mean, I, get, I have to imagine that uh, early on then, that sort of teaches you a lot about what it takes to be successful, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that you, know, you saw by example was hard work. I mean, that's my dad worked hard. My mom worked hard. Um, so as uh, you know, we get kids, my dad needed somebody down in the office, so my mom went to work with him. And so uh, during the summers, you know, we kids were kind of Last key kids, but we were home by ourselves. In fact, we actually kind of preferred it that way. <laughs> but we had yeah. we had chores assigned, right? So uh, you know, doing the dishes, cleaning the house, making dinner, that kind of stuff uh, would be stuff that as kids we were assigned to do. And then just you know, again, my dad always taught us about getting jobs. So like my brothers and I and my sister, we had a paper route. Like I, think I got it in sixth or seventh grade. Got a paper route. So to earn our own money. And in fact, uh, I remember my dad taught me one lesson. Uh, we had a, the school carnival was coming up. This was before I had the paper out. And I just sold my football card collection to Danny Clements for about 10 bucks. Oh, oh, man. And we went to the carnival and my dad gave money to my siblings and then told me, you don't get any because you've got your own money. That's not fair. (laughs) Good lesson to learn right away. Right. So like earn your own money, save your own money, work hard, that kind of thing. I bet Danny Clemens made out with a few good football cards out of that deal. Huh? Well, you know, there was another story about Danny Clemens too. Uh, The Bill Buckner rookie card. I traded it for him. I traded for it. I got it. And uh, then he realized he wanted it back. We clearly called no trade backs, there right? you go. as is the standard protocol whenever that, you're doing trades, right? And it's for, a blood oath in the in yeah. elementary school. Absolutely. Well, you would think, you would think. <laughs> but Danny decided he wanted it back and like started calling our house and, you know, and doing doorbell ditch it and stuff like that. No. And my mom finally made me give it back to him. Oh. So I was totally mad. Now, in a final twist of the story, on my 40th birthday, Danny framed the card and gave it back to me. <laughs> no. Well, at least he's got a sense of humor about it. Right. Now, like, Thank you, Danny. I don't know that you ever acknowledged that we did call trade, no trade backs, but there you go. Yeah. An apology is in order, but I'll take the card back. <laughs> I'll take the card. So I still have that Bill Bunker card framed in my office. So. <laughs> That's a great story. I love that. Well, I mean, look, you had to have grown up with sports. 
right? I mean, it seems like you're you're super into uh, you know the football cards and baseball cards, but I mean, somewhere along the way, the family does buy the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, so that was actually a dream of my brother Tom. Tom, when he was in business, so uh, first of all, take a step back. You're right. Yeah, we grew, all grew up in sports, little league baseball, major league football, you know that kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, we went to Chicago. Uh, I went to school there to the University of Chicago. I'm the oldest. My uh, siblings all hero worship me, so they followed me there. Um, my <laughs> I'm sure they're going to be delighted to hear this. I told them are going to love that. It's not the first time I've heard that line, though. Uh, anyway, so but Todd was kind of the black sheep. Uh, he went to Loyola University, you know, up on the north side. Tom and Todd, Tom, Tom and Laura went to University of Chicago. But, uh, you know, back then, this is back in, you know, the I think I graduated college in 86 and the Cubs were starting to get good then. You know, we went to the playoffs in 84. Oh, that's the Sandberg Dawson era, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's when we started to become Cubs fans. And in fact, uh, we actually had an apartment across the street from Wrigley Field on the corner of Addison and Sheffield. It's part of the sports corner bar now. But it was right across the street. So we'd wait out. This is back in the old, for all of your younger listeners, this is back in the old days when we didn't have this fancy thing called internet. We had go stand out in line on a February night and freeze your tail off while you waited for the ticket box to uh, ticket, the box office to open the next day. And then you got in line, you know, you were in line and then you bought your tickets. So that's one of the things that we had to do back in the olden days. And then they eventually did kind of start catching up where you could do phone lines, but then it was always a you know, a crapshoot whether or not you can get through. Right. So staying, waiting out in line was actually more assured. But anyway, so. I mean, uh, I watched a lot of Cub games in that era too, because I mean, I think it was the era before the lights were installed, right? So right. Played, it was. If oh, I remember amazing. the lights were installed. That was a big controversy. Like, right. It was a big it. controversy, but I remember as a kid being a huge baseball fan as I was, I was a twins fan. I grew up in Minnesota, but during the day in the summer, there was only one game. Right. Because the Cubs were the ones that played the home game. So WGN was like a fixture in my house watching baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how that's how the Cubs really became America's team, because being on WGN, the Superstation, they were broadcast all over the country. And, you know, obviously, like I said, we had the advantage of living in Chicago and going to the games. But and being in the bleachers, I I bought uh, what I would do is buy four bleacher seats to every weekend home game. The first year I bought them, Josh, you know how much they were? $4. $4. Oh, geez. $4. And then the, the next year, the Cubs were, like I said, they were starting to get popular. They doubled the price to $8. <laughs> now they're putting, they were pushing it at that point, right? <laughs> so, uh, it was still probably pretty good value. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we, so we grew up as kind of Cubs fans. And then, you know, the opportunity came up with, uh, you know, the success that my dad had at Ameritrade to be able to, by the Cubs. And Tom, when he was in business school, wrote a paper how he wanted to be like the general manager for the Cubs. Uh-huh. And so this was Tom's idea. He actually reached out. This is when I was running for Senate in 2006. He reached out and said, hey, the Cubs are going to be sold or the tribute company is going to be sold to a private equity firm. They won't keep the Cubs as part of this. They'll spin that out because it makes no sense to have a, a baseball team within a media company like it right. is. So we should buy it. And I'm like, Dude, I love the idea, but I have no time to help you. I'm running for Senate. So go ahead, crazy man. You know, you do your thing. Go, go, go do your Don Quixote thing. Tilt that windmills. 
<laughs> but Tom did a great job of putting together the team. He got the best advisors uh, from the investment banking side, from the legal side. And when the Cubs announced in April of 2007 that they were for sale, Tom was Johnny on the spot there with our team. And of course, the whole process took, you know, like I said, he started it really in the fall of 2006, bringing the rest of the family on. In fact, the way he convinced my dad is they were at one of the rooftops overlooking Wrigley Field. And Tom said to dad, said, dad, look at this. And oh, dad's yeah. like, yeah, it's beautiful. He's like, no, dad, they sell 3 million tickets every year. And dad goes, you mean this is a business? <laughs> there you go. And Tom's like, yes, it's a business. Got the old man's attention with that. that. That's how it got the old man's attention. That's exactly right. So, and I loved it from the idea of like, this could be a family business that, yeah. you know, people would want to be involved in. Like you could buy a widget factory and maybe somebody be uh, interested. You could put it in, the money into a, Properly diversified portfolio, and you guarantee nobody would care. Right. But if you bought the Cubs, you probably have something a lot of members of the family for generations would want to be a part of, or at least be interested in. And so totally. it's just kind of a way to keep the family together because, you know, I love the feel from Ameritrade when we were a family business. And my mom used to like bake birthday cakes for everybody in the office on their birthdays. And we got too big for that. So we just had a birthday, you know, one day a month, we'd have, you know, donuts and stuff like that for everybody's birthday. But, you know, I had that family feel even as we got bigger. That's and cool. I didn't even I realize that. So, like, you, yeah. you guys basically did everything as a family at that point. I mean, that, that, I mean that's significant, right? Yeah. There was, yeah. We, I mean, we're a very tight family, very close family. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I, I like the idea from keeping it along those lines. And like I said, it took us till October of 2009 to actually get the whole deal pulled together. It was like the longest sale in history. <laughs> but uh, Tom did a, my brother Tom did a fantastic job, much better than I would have. I would have lost patience way earlier than Tom did. And he, but he got it. Uh, he just had the persistence and got it all pulled together. And we were ultimately ended up being the successful, um, you know, bidder for a lot of ups and downs. You know, things like Bogoyevich trying to sell off oh, the, the God, U.S. Senate seat right. there, <laughs> and how that impacted us is the guy who was negotiating for the Tribune Company got wrapped up into the FBI depositions on that. Oh. So that was just one of the things that you wouldn't expect necessarily to come up when you're trying to buy a baseball team, but it does. Yeah, it does t- teaches a little bit uh, of something about ethics and government too while you're at it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Well, I mean, look, the end of the story of that is you guys win World Series. I mean, you you did the impossible and brought the Chicago Cubs a World Series after so many decades and decades of misery. Well, and that's the thing, right? There was no curse. The curse was bad management. And I, I don't know about the Wrigley's because that was, you know, they, the Wrigley sold to the Tribune Company in 1981 for $20 million, if you can believe it. I'm like, whoa, wish I had that deal. Wow. But what I can tell you with the Tribune Company, the reason they didn't win is because the Tribune Company didn't care about winning. And it turns out winning is actually hard. Like, mm-hmm. Even when you're trying, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so as a, a public company, they would, you like Jim Henry, our previous general manager, would say, I would never know if I had the money to actually sign my draft picks. Well, how can you operate a business if like I draft all these, I I can draft some great players, but I don't know if I'll have the money next quarter to actually sign them. Oh, geez. That's a rough one. And so so really it was just applying basic business practices to how do you run a business effective? Like, I don't know, crazy stuff, like putting in measurements and metrics, holding people accountable, (laughs) demanding excellence, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, like one of the things when we hired Theo Epstein, was Theo got all the scouts and the coaches together to do a three-day session. Never happened before, at least not in living memory, where the scouts and the coaches have been together, which is kind of crazy, right? They all work on the same wow. team. Yeah. And, he, and in three days, he put together this 
book called The Cubs Way. It was a manual for everything, how we did, detailed down to like if you're running down first base line and you're running through the bag, you hit it with your left foot. If you're running, if you're rounding the bag, you're hitting with your right foot on the inside corner, it cuts seven steps off to second base. Oh man, it's amazing. I'm giving you a ballpark kind of stuff. Yeah. At the end of three days, you said, okay, this is our manual. This is how we coach. This is how we scout. And the implication being, if you don't want to do this, you've been a part of Cranes, but if you don't want to do it, you should go to another organization. Find somewhere else. And part of it was a lot of the stuff you want to do on scouting, like every prospect had to be filmed. A bunch of the scouts didn't want to do that. So they left. Oh, that's incredible. We brought in other people who did want to do that work and wanted to be held accountable because they, you know, they wanted to be good. And that ultimately, that's how we changed the culture, just applying basic business practices, you know, running it like a business um, to be successful. And, you know, we had to get world-class facilities if we wanted our team to be world-class. That's why we changed our venue down in spring training and why we invested so much money in Wrigley Field. So it really is a lot of stuff that any successful business would probably do just hadn't been done at the Cubs. Mm-hmm. And that's what allowed us to really change, turn it around and, and get that World Series. Well, gosh, it did you ever. And I was saying last night when I watched Rizzo go deep for the Yankees, the guys that you put together on that squad, I mean, holy smokes, I can't believe that Schwarber and Rizzo, you had Bryant. I mean, everyone on the same team at the same time. I mean, that was a whale of a ball club. Yeah, it really was a good ball club. And, but it also just gets back to what I said earlier. Turns out winning's hard. Right? I mean, I don't know, Josh, did you watch that World Series with Cleveland? Sure did, yeah. Yeah, it was a really close run thing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, you're, you know, and of course the media was all talking about, because they were such a talented team, everybody's talking about, oh, dynasty, dynasty. But again, you see that, you know, even with the pretty much the same talent the next year, you know. Things change. Things change. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's just hard to keep that level of consistency. You know, the difference between the really good major league baseball teams is razor thin. Yeah. And so if. Just, well, and everybody adapts to you, right? I mean, you win a world series, they're going to play you differently than they did the year before. No question. Yeah. And then if you go back and just another thing, go look at our injuries. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The world yeah. series year. We had remarkably few injuries. Mm-hmm. That is true. If you look down some of those other years afterwards. Yeah. Now, nah, God, listen, Whale, I could talk to you for another hour about the Cubs. I just love it. I love everything about it. But I do want to get to your your run here as governor of, of Nebraska because it is uh, you know, one of the more under uh, appreciated and undertold success stories across this country. The management that you've had over two terms of the state, just incredible. It, what are some lessons learned here based upon, I'm sure you applied a bunch of business uh, principles to how you ultimately ran the state, but boy, it sure has worked out. Yeah. And it's just like what we do with the Cubs. You know, Tom came in and said, Hey, we're going to set a goal, you know, with the Cubs, Tom said, Hey, you know, our goals, bring a world championship to Chicago, fix up Wrigley field, be a good neighbor. Three things that he always preached, right? Well, when I came into governor's office, we had to kind of do the same thing that we did with the Cubs only for state government, which is start applying those business practices, you know, you were talking about to how we run our operations better. You know, we should be operationally excellent. You know, when you think about it, the big picture, take it to the 50,000 foot level. The argument between Republicans and Democrats is what is the proper size and scope of government, Yeah. right? Democrats want government to do a lot more. Republicans want to do a lot less. Broad strokes, right? But there are things we agree government should do. Mm-hmm. And for those things we agree government should do, we should do them really, really well. Like operational excellence should be our buzzword. Right? We should really be driving to provide great services. 
and do that in a way that reduces your costs. And that's totally doable, right? Private sector companies do it all the time. And while we're not a for-profit business in government, we can apply the same things. And I got to tell you, like when I walked into the governor's office after I got elected before I got sworn in, I went to the chief of staff at the time and I said, hey, can I have the job description for everybody who reports to the governor? And his response back, and he was only kind of half kidding, was, well, we, uh, oh, we don't have, first of all, he said, we don't have any. I'm like, you don't have any job descriptions? He's like, no. I'm like, well, how do you do annual reviews? And this is the part where I, he was kidding. He's like, kind of. He said, well, we review people daily. When they step out of line, we yell at them. <laughs> it was pretty much the way they operated. So we had to put basic stuff in, like job descriptions, coming up with measurements for everybody. Like yeah. people didn't have any measurements for how to do their job. People think that you can't fire civil servants. It's not true. Yeah. You can't fire anybody if you're not measuring how they do their job. Yeah. How do you know how do you know what to tell them what to do if you don't have goals for them to achieve and either they're achieving them or they're not. And if yeah. they're not achieving them, you help coach them to get better, right? Or you you know, if it's not a fit, then obviously you coach them out of the organization. Yeah. I mean, what you measure improves, right? And any lot of yeah. lot in life, what you measure improves because you got a, you got a measuring stick about whether you're either hitting the goal or you're not. Yeah, exactly right. So you got to have some, and people, again, pe- high performers, people who are good, want to be measured. Yeah. They want to know they're doing a good job, right? Yeah. And so that's part of just the step of, if you want to have excellence, you've got to drive that and it starts with just like, measuring what people are doing and holding accountable for getting it done. And frankly, we had to, you know, start developing our people, you know, that hadn't really been done training managers to manage. Uh, We do a leadership Academy now to really help develop our talent at the state of Nebraska. Just again, a lot of the stuff that you would expect a business to do. Uh, We've implemented lean six Sigma, which is a process movement uh, improvement methodology. Now we've done over 900 projects, saved over 900,000 hours of our teammates times hundred million dollars in hard savings and it's really allow us to drive uh, performance. Now, I'll give you just one quick example of how it can impact somebody's lives. So when you've got a child with special needs, whether it's, you know, physical or behavioral, you often have to travel to get specialist help, right? And mm-hmm. most of these families, they're not wealthy families. So they need to get reimbursed for their hotel room and mileage and stuff like that. Well, on average, it was taking us 16 days to reimburse somebody for their expenses. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, it's outside of a two-week pay period, yeah. right? That's 14 days. So now you're putting a financial strain on these families who had to pay out of pocket, and now they're waiting past a pay period to get reimbursed. Yeah, they're carrying the balance. Exactly right. And so and these families can't afford it. So what we did is we did a process improvement. We cut it down from like 89 steps to 62 steps. But more importantly, we took the time down from 16 days to three days. Now, there you go. Now we're within the, the two week, your, your pay period. So you're not burdening these families with how do I get past, you know, wait till my government uh, reimbursement shows up so I can actually, you know, pay my heat or, you know, utility. Bill I, I just, yeah, you, you think, you know, listening to you talk about it, you'd think that some of this stuff is self-evident, but it's just not done, right? I mean, government is so bureaucratic. We see with the Biden administration, all of the new hoops and hurdles that they're giving individuals and businesses, not to mention inflation and everything else. I mean, that's got to frustrate you to no end. Yeah. You know, because again, and I, I can tell you, it's been a journey for us to stay in Nebraska. You just don't turn this stuff on and it works right away. It's changing a culture and that takes years in the private sector. Even. Yeah. I 
I cannot even imagine how hard it would be at the federal level, but it has to happen. It does. We simply have to have a federal government that, that functions, that works well. Again, we can argue the big picture policy stuff between Republicans and Democrats, but man, there's a lot of stuff we agree government should do and it should do it well. And all too often it fails. Yeah. Well, listen, the country could use more governance uh, the way that you've laid it out. There's no question about that. I want to get to our three questions because I think, you know, let's look at I'm sort of fascinated in the answers of this uh, with you. The first one, and I, you know, I'm serving up a Nebraska guy, this this kind of question. So I, I kind of think which way we're headed, but, uh, you know, just to just to make it a formality, if you can plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? Well, I know you're th- expecting me to say something about a nice, juicy steak. That's you know, where like I got Tomahawk ribeye done rare, Pittsburgh. So that's kind of the easy one. But I, I, frankly, if it was really my last meal, we have this pizza place in Nebraska and Omaha called Zio's. My wife and I go there about every weekend and have been for as long as I could. Well, I started going there ever since I moved back from Chicago to Omaha. So that's been 30 odd years. I've been there about every weekend. And since my wife and I started dating, we've been married 25 years now. We go yeah. about every weekend. <laughs> that's so good. So that's kind of this pizza by the slice, New York style. So that would probably be my last meal because that's kind of my comfort food, right? So I get that, it. that's probably where I'm going to go. Yeah. If you're, if you're counting your last minutes, you're probably going to want to be as comfortable as possible. I, right. I, get, I get it. And you can have a couple extra slices because you're going to slide in sideways anyway. <laughs> I love it. All right. So question number two, if you never got into public service, never got into politics, and you had this sort of blue sky in the middle of your life that you could plan anything, literally anything that you wanted to do with, and you just fill it in, what do you think it would be? Well, I never had the eyesight to be able to do this, but I think uh, being a Navy fighter pilot, oh, there you coolest go. Thing ever. Like you're talking about like, Elite athlete from a physical, I mean, you just saw the Maverick movie, right? Totally, yeah. So, yeah, right. So, I mean, like, great, even better than the first one, frankly. Totally. But, like, it's a physical job. You have to be smart. I mean, you have to, I mean, it's detail. I mean, it's just like, it, this is probably got to be one of the toughest jobs on the planet. Yep. Yeah. And then the land on that carrier, I've actually had the chance to watch some of these nighttime landings. Uh, those people are brave okay. because that boat goes up, even a carrier goes up and down in the water. Yeah. And you got to time it and land it on there and catch that arrestor hook. Those folks, I mean, every time they land, they're they're courting danger. It is like those are just those are the people I just admire the most. And maybe like a second right behind them would be Navy SEALs, just because of the great work they do for us as well. But if but I never, like I said, my eyes have always been bad, so I've never really had that. <laughs> wasn't well, an option. To do that, yeah, it wasn't really much of an option for me to be able to try and do that. The physical aspect would have been probably a challenge as well, too. But I got to imagine if you were fi- flying a fighter pilot, though, you'd have the Top Gun soundtrack going at all times, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just part of the criteria. Oh yeah, I'd be playing all that '80s music because that's the best music decade ever. If if Kenny Loggins isn't in your ears when you're flying a pilot, I know you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So the final question is. Our view is that every successful person is generally motivated by one of two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. It's not that anybody enjoys losing, right? Or anybody gets any less benefit out of winning. It's what motivates you, right? And and the the agony of defeat people are people whose every success that they've ever had in life uh, lasts about five minutes, right? But any defeat or setback that they've ever had, they sort of carry around like a backpack, vowing never to 
never have that happen. They work that much harder to make sure it never happens. The thrill of victory people are are generally optimistic, glass half full, always charging up the hill to the next thing, regardless of the outcome. Governor Ricketts, where do you find yourself on this? Well, Josh, you pretty much laid it out. So there's only one right answer to this. I don't know. <laughs> we're about we're about 50-50. You'd be surprised. Really? Okay. Well, first of all, I would say for me, what motivates me is trying to discern what am I supposed to do? God has got a purpose for everybody on this planet. We all have our unique skills, the talents we bring to the table, and we're supposed to figure out what does God want us to do to be able to help carry out his will on earth. So I think that for me is my biggest motivator. When you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you can do really, really hard things and they get to be easy. So I would say if you're going to like force me into, okay, which one it is, it's about winning because I like to win. I like to be successful because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's going to help somebody else. It's going to benefit somebody else. And so I want to make sure I'm successful because I'm probably doing it for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like running government. Well, I, I you know, I shared with the story about how we help families just in that one small example. We do that all over the place. It's taking so many opportunities to help people. So that's what really gets me up in the morning. I love being successful. I love winning. Um, and, I, and here's another thing I learned after losing my Senate race back in 06. You can fail in very big public ways and it's okay. Yeah. Sun still comes up the next morning. Your yep. kids are still your kids and they still love you. Your friends are still your friends. You know, my wife still loved me. You know, like the world didn't end because I lost that Senate race back in 2006. And once you understand that, you know, you, to be successful in life, you have to take risks. They're called risks for a reason because sometimes things go bad, right? Yep. And so whatever you're trying is not successful. You take a chance and it fails. But if you never take a chance, you're never going to push the envelope. You're never going to climb the mountain. You, unless you're risking failure, you're never really succeeding. Yeah. And yeah. The, as, as, as I was thinking about this too, also, I just love, and I can't quote it to you, and you probably don't want me to, but that Theodore Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena. Yeah. I love that because it's like, yeah, even if you fail, at least you failed knowing that you didn't just go blah, right? right. It was like, I failed trying hard. And yes, it's terrible. It really sucks losing. It sucks failing. But it's better to feel something than to not feel anything at all. You never try. Yeah. Well, it's really well said, Governor. I, I think we all get a pretty good handle on why it is that you've been successful at just about everything you've done over time. Listen, I hope, and I think all of our listeners hope that uh, your public service continues well into the future because it's been a model of how conservative governance can work and should work uh, well into the future. So thanks for what you're doing. Uh, is there a website or something people can follow along uh, what you're up to? Yeah, we're at GovRickets or you know, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm sure there probably still is a PeteRickets.com website out there, but I'm not promising that's been updated in about four years. So. <laughs> yeah, The day job is going kind of keeps us kind of busy. So Somebody's probably looking into that right about now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that'll be my next call. <laughs> I love it. Listen, (laughs) Governor Ricketts, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot, Josh. You have a good one. So that guy's a great guy. Yeah. Right? I mean, man, first of all, he's a great governor. He explained, I think, why he's a great governor. But also, God, you got to love the Cubs talk, right? Yeah. I mean, a guy that's, you know, family baseball is like the family business. Absolute dude. Oh, God, I love it. I just love it. And I really hope... Uh, that he will be the next United States Senator from Nebraska. I Hell yeah. I don't think I'm alone on that. No, yeah, I hope they figure that out. Hope they figure that out. All right, fellas. So, uh, I mean, it looks to me we're going to have to play a game, right? We have to, and it's Thursday, and we missed it last week, so we got to play King of the Hill. Yeah. 
Um, all right, so who is our champion? I, I think Holmes does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mail, mail pattern. Mail pattern. Dowd. Uh, Smug. Who do you got for us today? Bill Crystal. Wow. Mm, yeah. Mm. Well, he's got a fantastic intro, uh, and that leaves us to go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. It's time for King of the Hill. In the red corner, fighting from the pages of Pierre O'Madire's checkbook. Bill, war now, war forever, Crystal. And now, in the blue corner, fighting from an empty campaign office in Texas, and current champion of the world, Matthew Mail Pattern Dowd. Oh, that's so great. I love it every time. I, I love the fighting from the pages of Pierre <laughs> Omadire's checkbook. <laughs> it's such a gift. It's, uh, it's just poetry. Oh, uh, really? Okay, is. so uh, you got to go first, Holmes, as our defending champion. Mail pattern. What are you bringing to the table? I got something good to start off with. Okay. All right, this is Dowd. Among the coalition of voters, the Democratic can and must get to win in November. Dems slash independents. The most crucial concern over inflation in the economy is preserving democracy. It is only amongst GOP voters that inflation is a solid dominant issue. <laughs> what? <laughs> this has kind of been his hobby horse. The whole preserving democracy is going to override everything. Republicans are yeah. the only ones that inflation o- bothers. Only ones. No, it's preserving democracy that's, the, the, oh. that's really motivating that middle class. Smug is turning his phone sideways yeah. in order to get a better look at this. That's right. So so the thing is that, like, yes, that's a bad take, but it's kind of like theory versus application, okay. right? Like, he has a theory of, okay, this is what I think the election is about. How do you apply that? Bill Crystal <laughs> applies that. He says, uh, a challenger who's within four points of an incumbent four weeks out can win. McMullen can win. For wow. folks who've probably never heard of him, there's this guy, Evan McMullen in Utah. Most people call him McMuffin, who never pays his campaign bills. And is just, I mean, there's long shot candidates and there's long shot candidates. Yeah, except the backstory on McMullen is he was actually recruited by Bill Crystal. That's the beauty of it. Right? It's like, yeah. he always keeps it inside the business <laughs> of the wheelhouse. He's like, listen, Piero Madar is now paying my bills. He also likes this candidate. I guess I got a show for him. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, oh. it's okay, but like you know, the idea that preserving it's, democracy it's over inflation. Bill Crystal. Like, Bill Crystal never knows when to end a war. Fronting Evan McMullen for six years. <laughs> My God. Oh. Um. Wow. Well, they're both they're both great. Um. It is funny that Bill Crystal thinks he's a he's a campaign guru. <laughs> like at least Dowd worked as an analyst and worked in politics, right? Oh, like yeah. run running elections, you know, and he was an analyst for was it ABC News? Yep. Um so theoretically he knows what he's talking about. He's obviously fucking wrong and this has been his <laughs> hobby horse forever. Yeah, I think yeah, he treated politics more of like a a, a dating service for his kids. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man! Wow! Brutal! Yikes! Brutal! For the wives of his candidates, is that what you say? say? <laughs> might Damn, stretch Arnold, beyond that. You really though. shouldn't have picked him. It might stretch beyond that. <laughs> but Bill Crystal moonlighting as a political strategist, I'll never uh, not go for. It's just fantastic stuff, and in particular because it's Evan McMullen of all people, of all people. Um, and for that reason, Smug wins round one. Let's go. Mm. Can you go for the knockout in round two? I think so. So there there were a lot of things about what Crystal tweeted over the past week that have really bothered me. This one really this one really did. Okay, this is from uh Bill Crystal 21 hours ago. The guy keeps at it. Quote, "Let's pretend that you were a Republican in 2000 and you cared about robust foreign policy, the spread of democracy abroad." <laughs> The rule of law, free trade. Well, guess what? The Democratic Party is now your natural home for those priorities. The like, how many how, how the, many responses did he get from like like uh, left wing people being like, "We don't fucking want you." But <laughs> the problem is that like a lot of the b- b- because the left wing has now become like the war ink right. party. So, so when Bill Crystal, who has 100% always advocated for wars he doesn't have to fight in, they're like, yes, actually, that's good. So, so when he says robust foreign policy, right, <laughs> that the Democrats currently have, which is basically OPEC dunking on us, yeah, you know, like every country not taking America seriously, the spread of democracy abroad, when we're like uh, repealing any sanctions we have on Venezuela, right, so that we can buy their oil, uh, the rule of law. I mean, Look around, folks. <laughs> Look around. Free trade. Yet again, I go back to America is now crippled, especially in energy. The audacity of someone like his his if he had, really takes a wind up. Yeah. If he had any sort of of, of self awareness yeah. or shame, like he would delete his account and go on like an apology tour. He would door knock right. every house in America and be like, "I'm Bill Crystal." I'm the asshole with all the bad ideas. Yeah, I'm so sorry. All the bad ideas that almost destroyed the yeah. Republican Party. I'm here to help, Democrats. Yeah, I'm here to help. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to... Can I approach the bench? Of course. Um, I want a preemptive ruling. You need a sidebar here? Well, I want a preemptive ruling. So we have a seven-day limit. Okay. Right? And upon taping this currently... Mm-hmm. There is a well within seven day. There's the timestamp at the bottom there. It's seven days. Okay. Six days and twenty two hours uh, to be right specific. Okay. So, am I? Is this admissible? It is admissible. Okay. I'll allow it. Okay. Sometimes I don't know because you know, like you know. I thought we settled this. I think there's the case law would show that I'm an artist. Well, I no, I agree that it is, but that's why I approach the bench. I, I don't want this after always the fact. Right. I don't good. want to do it after the fact. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. So this is one of my favorite doubt. It's like it's trying to mitigate an abject disaster for the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. right? So he's got to like use his big brain logic to mm. figure this out, but ultimately it always makes no sense, <laughs> right? Can someone explain to me how many, how so many GOP voters come to this conclusion? Crime in the country is a major problem, but crime in my state and in my local community isn't a major problem. Don't all people live in simultaneously a country, state, and community? 
<laughs> My God. I mean, so so that's just dumb. Did that? he take an edible? <laughs> so that's just like a dumb take. No. When Bill You're Chris- missing the genius. You're missing the genius. When Crystal says, let's pretend you're a Republican, 2000, you cared about robust foreign policy, <laughs> the spread of democracy abroad, the rule of law, free trade. He hits all of these currently that like they're winning on, let alone one issue. <laughs> it's the all-encompassing Crystal bad take. You're missing this. First of all, there's no one on the planet that says crime in the country is a major problem, but crime in my state isn't. Right. Nobody says that. Right. Because crime is a problem in every state. Right. Right? I mean, I think we're all well aware of that, except for doubt, apparently. And but Crystal absorbed that when he says rule of law. Like, Crystal is the end game of this doubt bullshit. But the conclusion is particularly good because somehow that leap of logic, don't all people live simultaneously in a country, state, and community? Which side is that, like, what side does that argue for? Uh, honestly, I, I think what it is is that he's sort of saying the quiet part out loud here. Is that yeah? There maybe there are places where there's rampant crime, where people are dying and getting raped and murdered and trafficked and drugs are out of control. But my neighborhood's just fine. My neighborhood's just fine. We can defund the police here. You know, won't impact me at all. <laughs> yeah, except he's talking about Republicans. Right, right. I don't know. He's talking about Republicans. I have no idea. I mean, that would make sense. That's right. my point. Is that that point that what you just said would make total sense? if you were arguing against a democratic point of view. Right. Right? That somehow there's like not a, there's a disconnect between the communities that disproportionately feel crime and so right. therefore, but Republicans are the ones that are arguing for more police. Right. Right? So it's like literally the opposite justification. And like, I feel like he's like four pong loads in at this point. Yes. Right? It, there's no other way to make it make sense. The, uh, second round win for Crystal. I mean, this is the first time this guy's picked a fight. He won. I don't think so. I think Dowd wins round two. We're on to the final, All right. Pi- All right. final round, which, Holmes, you got to go first. Okay. All right. So this is what I'm going to do with this one. And again, it kind of falls into the category of him summoning his previous political expertise to tell us all the way that this is going to work. And But the conclusion is just fascinating because it ignores so much. A month out from Election Day, an economist YouGov poll gave Dems a three-point generic ballot lead. In 2010, GOP had an average lead of 5% one month out. In 2018, Dems had a 5% advantage lead a month out. This will be a close election, but right now it leans more Dem this year than GOP. (laughs) That's boring as shit. I just need to pick, like, which nuke I want to drop. And honestly... I'm going to pick the one that makes me look awesome. Let me just say as a backdrop of this, in a hundred and some odd years of of midterm elections, only twice in American history has the party in power picked up seats. Right. Right? One of them was 9-11. It it was just... This was just like some random dork shit. So this is what Bill Crystal drops October 11th. Regarding Tulsi Gabbard. Makes sense. If you're pro-Assad and pro-Putin... You joined today's Republican Party. And I use this to highlight the dunk I had on him where I said, the veteran you're smearing actually served in one of the many wars you advocated for from the couch in your living room. Wait, so hold on. There is a level of like <laughs> just disgust that I have for, for Bill you're saying Crystal. That's, you're saying that's inadmissible, Holmes. Is well, no, no. Saying? What I'm saying is it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a new, it's certainly a new play to try to use this platform as a, a way to draw attention to your own tweets. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. 
council is attacking opposite council. It's almost like the message doesn't carry, which, uh, you know, of all people, John Maynard Keynes had this great quote where he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? For Crystal at this point to maintain, he wants to send Americans to die for wars that he, he, he like cheers on from his couch to me is so, I mean, I've known so many friends, classmates, peers who have suffered from what Crystal has advocated for that to me, like on a personal level, it just it, it beyond irritates me. The fact that he's allowed to have any sort of a podium and any credibility is an affront to everything this country stands for. And so when he drops that take, it's like, how dare you? But this is it someone who served in one of the wars that you were just hawking? This is someone who was out, actually, and, and Tulsi served in, in one of the medic crews. Can you imagine what she saw out there in Iraq? It wasn't fun. It's not like what Crystal sees when, like, some think tank sends him a check and he goes back on his couch and has another nice little drink. But isn't it? That's where my but, tweet but outrage comes from. But isn't, isn't Crystal calling Republicans pro-Putin pretty boiled over at this point? Yeah, well... I don't. I mean, your first take on the preserving democracy is the number one issue, and Democrats is a pretty run-of-the-mill take. Mm. No, because it's a pl- comes from a political analyst. Okay. Well, yet again, judge and jury is right. Uh, <laughs> um, which YouGov poll is he responding to there? Uh, is it the one that just came out? So it must be. Let me just check the dates. Uh, yeah, it has to be the 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 latest one, a uh, month out from election day. Yeah, it's got to be the last one. Okay. The Economist. YouGov poll. Yeah, I'm just. I, I need to read into this to see if he's being a dipshit on purpose. A three-point generic ballot lead is what he's claimed. Hmm. Which very well could be the point, uh, as we all know. But let's look at the methodology here. Who responded? 1,500 U.S. adults. Sample was weighted. Uh, 2020 election turnout, baseline party identification, and current voter registration status. Mm. Well, this sounds like it's a, Is it a registered, registered voter, voter oh, poll. Oh, that's a registered voter poll. A month out from the election, <laughs> we're doing registered voter polls, and the professional political analyst is saying this generic ballot that benefits the Democrats means they're going to pick up seats? <laughs> I mean, that's just offensive. It's pretty offensive. That's pretty fucking offensive. That is fantastic. It is a registered voter poll. Economist I mean, I, I, I doubt there's anything that's more offensive than Bill Crystal of all people. Calling a veteran. Trying to attack food. a veteran. Mm. Gosh, it's tough. This is tough. I mean, it's viscerally, that's the most about. disgusting thing possible. Of all people in this world for Bill Crystal yes. to attack a veteran who served I just think in one of the wars he sent God knows how many Americans to fight in. I think at the end of the day, I am moved by Smug's advocacy, and for that reason, Bill Crystal wins. Okay. Okay. What a wonderful victory. Just What a wonderful victory. It was hard fought. It was, it was hard, hard fought. One thing Bill Crystal has never done. <laughs> <laughs> that we could all agree on. <laughs> That we could all agree on. Oh, I love it. Okay. All right. So, listen, we did a little different order. We want to see if everybody's paying attention. You got the game at the end yeah. here, right? You yeah. stick around for the stick good around. stuff. Yeah. Cherry on top. All right, fellas. I think we've done it. I think so. Absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. And thank you so much to our listeners. Keep telling your friends to listen, subscribe, uh, and our YouTube for, for, for the upcoming surprise. So, until next time, minions. Keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. 
We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.